Today we begin the story, a 31-week tour through the Bible. The story takes place on three levels. Uh, First, we invite you to read the scriptures that I'm going to teach during the week. If you still don't have your book uh, with those scripture selections, the book itself is called The Story. There are still some available for sale after the service. So you read the scriptures. I teach them on Sunday. And then the heart of this effort really is meeting with people in a small group to discuss and apply in a relationship-oriented, disciple-making kind of way the very same passage. So really, we're going to experience God and His story, the unfolding of history, in three ways. First, with Him alone, then together as a church family, and then in small groups where we get to struggle with and question and apply what God is saying to us in His Word. I'm thrilled that you've joined us for the journey. The story begins, as all stories do and all stories must, in the beginning. The first words of Scripture, and I'll be moving quickly through uh, the opening pages of Genesis if you'll open your Bible and look to the very first verse. The story of Scripture begins with this simple, categorical, and today more controversial than ever statement. Would you read it with me? Genesis 1-1 says... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this leads, of course, to all kinds of questions, and this is where the controversy begins. How is it possible that God was simply there? How can you start our story by simply telling us that God is and this is what he did? As we move through this journey together, I want to, and I'll be reminding you of this little framework. As we read through the Bible together, we're going to discover what Pastor Randy Frazee calls the upper story and the lower story. The upper story is what God knows and what God is doing. It's like he's setting up the game board and the pieces and he is moving them around to fulfill his plans and his purpose. The other story that we're much more familiar with is what Frazee calls the lower story. That's my story and yours. That's our life here on earth. You're going to see as the Bible unfolds the story of God and the people he dealt with that those upper and lower stories meet all the time. And that God himself steps forward into history. And the upper story meets the lower story. And if you're going to follow Jesus, one way to understand discipleship is understanding the upper story, what God is up to, where he is headed, and submitting your story, the lower story, to his plan, to his purpose, to do the good work the Bible says he created you to do before the foundation of the world. But the Bible starts the only place it could, with God himself. The first chapter of Genesis has 31 verses, and the name of God appears in 31 verses 32 times. It's a Christian cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. History is his story. In this story, you're going to meet several different characters. You're going to meet God himself. You're going to meet the first human family, Adam and Eve, and their children, Cain and Abel. You're going to meet a righteous man in a wrecked, immoral, disastrous world named Noah. But in the center of all of it, driving all of it, writing all of it, 
directing all of it with all of his power and with all of his grief and sorrow as well is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And someone will say, no fair, you can't just start a story with a character with a person who is simply there. Could I offer to you the idea that we don't really have any other choice but to believe that something simply exists? Anybody remember Carl Sagan? I didn't think that name would be as familiar in this service as it was in the first. Years ago, there was a, a series called Cosmos. And Carl Sagan set out as a brilliant scientist who explained the origins of the universe. That series has more recently been rebooted by a guy who is so famous he has become an internet meme, a scientist named Neil deGrasse Tyson. He, start, he rebooted the Cosmos series. Here are the opening words of the Cosmos series where the most brilliant scientists we have available to us in last century and in this century tell us where we came from. Both Sagan years ago and Tyson much more recently began a scientific explanation of where the world came from and why it is here with these words. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Now that's just as categorical as Genesis 1.1. God says, in the beginning I exist. In the beginning, I am. Brilliant astrophysicists, and I don't deny their education or their brilliance. They say, in the beginning, it was here. Matter was here. A cloud was here. Energy was here, and it interacted and somehow created the building blocks of life in an improbably, almost impossibly, certainly incomprehensibly improbable series of events here we are. A generation ago, another Harvard astrophysicist named Harlow Shapley put it like this. Some piously record, in the beginning God, but I say, in the beginning hydrogen. So you really can have your choice. Either there is a person who creates and makes and orders and directs, or there simply is stuff that somehow became all of us. The one thing that we're all agreed on, I think, is we're all here, right? Are you here? Some of you are beginning to wonder at this point, but I can tell you using the scientific method based on my observation, you appear to be here and have good reason to believe that you actually are. What am I telling you? Both systems, the naturalistic, materialistic system, meaning that matter is all there is, that excludes God, and this simple beginning to God's story, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, both require faith. Reason has its limits in reaching back into the very beginning, and we cannot understand matter that was simply there, and we cannot fully understand a God who was simply there, but we have good reason to believe that it's not in the beginning hydrogen, it actually is in the beginning God. The Bible starts with this simple, unapologetic declaration, in the beginning God existed and as we read through these chapters, you're going to find three facets of God's personality that I'd like to share with you. First and foremost, God's first claim and explanation of himself is simply this. God is the creator. That means that he is eternal. 
just as some people believe that matter was simply there somehow and we don't understand why, the Bible explains that God is simply there and he is eternal and he is powerful and he is good. How do I know that he is good? Because as I read the creation story, in six days of creation, God is speaking and acting and every time God concludes a portion of his creation, he steps back and looks at what he has made and he calls it good. God is the creator. You're going to discover that every single thing that I explained to you about God's character is actually found inside of you. The Bible goes on to explain that God is not only eternal and powerful and good, but he is relational. Look at Genesis 1:26 with me. And tell me what word in this passage in the Bible is surprising to you. It said, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's a single Bible verse. Did you catch a word in there that seems out of place, that seems surprising? Us. Then God said, let us. Hmm. The singular name of God, but God appears to be speaking to himself within himself, and he says, us. What's going on? Well, the Hebrew word, we've got an English translation, but the Hebrew word here, without getting too grammatical in you, and you note takers are going to go crazy because for 31 weeks, I'm just going to give you a blank page. Okay? I'm going to try to move narratively through this passage of Scripture to help you understand it as I discover it myself, hopefully as the first readers understood it, so that we would see the world the way God sees it and try to follow after him. But this is one of those points that I think you need to understand about the Hebrew language without getting too, without getting too technical. The word God in Hebrew is Elohim. And that is, follow me now, a singular noun with a plural ending. In other words, there is a hint here in the very first chapter of the Bible that there is one God, but somehow he is in relationship with himself. So that the singular God can say, let us make man in our image. That's why we reflect him. So that when I say that God is a creator... You discover in, as you look at your life that you have creative impulses in you. Now, maybe you're not very artistic, but every human being on earth likes to make things. Whether that's food or Lego sculptures that an unwitting father can step on in the dark later, every human being has in him or herself a creative impulse. But here's the difference between God of us when it comes to creating. We're not actually creating. We're rearranging we're fashioning. We begin with matter and we make it into something else. One day the Mona Lisa was just paint and a brush. Those two pre-existing elements were somehow fashioned into a masterpiece of work. Only God himself creates out of nothing. And he is relational because when he comes to crown his creation to make the one thing in the entire universe that reflects him, the singular God speaks within himself and says, let us make man in our image. As we keep reading the story and God continues to explain himself to us and let us know who he is, you're going to discover the concept of the Trinity. A father, 
the Son, and the Spirit. One God somehow eternally existing in three persons in perfect peace and harmony within himself. And you say, I don't understand that. Can I tell you the truth? I don't either. But I'm not terribly troubled by that. I don't understand myself. You ever walked away from a situation saying, why did I say that? You ever thought to yourself, what's wrong with me? You've known yourself your whole life and you don't understand yourself. Don't be entirely troubled by the fact that you cannot perfectly fathom the person who made you and all the other people and everything that is. He's real, he's personal, he's relational, he's in eternal somehow existence and perfect harmony within himself. And as the supreme creative act, he makes someone in his image to relate to him. That's you. That's why people search in vain in the lower story to find all of their fulfillment and all of their purpose. If your whole life is all about the lower story, in other words, what you can get out of this brief breath of life on earth and you don't account for the creator that made you relationally to relate to other people and to relate to him, you'll never find purpose, you'll never find peace, you'll never find the very ground and creation of your existence. God said, let us make man in our image. He is relational. And because it's a genuine relationship, Genesis goes on to explain that God is also a moral, righteous lawgiver. If there are to be true relationships, there must be freely given love and trust. Let me explain that to you. I've been married to the most wonderful girl on earth for over 20 years, but I would never know if she really loved me if I would have taken her down the altar of that church in Midland, Texas at gunpoint. If I put a gun to her head and say, say you love me, let's go, in sickness or in health, good, richer or poorer, you'll keep yourself only unto me. Well, she might get the words out for fear of being shot, but it wouldn't be real. If it was real, we'd never know because it was obligated, it was forced, it was automatic, it was compelled. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we find that God, who freely relates within himself, freely extends love and trust to people and invites them into relationship, but there is a moral test. There is a relational test in that perfect world that he created. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 tells us that. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Side note, that tells me that work is good. Before there was sin in the world, there was work. I know that work is good and holy and fulfilling because God himself is a worker. And even God, though he doesn't need it, takes rest from work. That's why you have a drive to succeed. That's why you have a drive to be useful. God has put man in this perfect relational environment with everything he needs to reflect God's image back to him. But here's the relational test. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it doesn't seem like much, does it? That seems like a simple test for trust and relationship. That seems like a simple test for worship and obedience. You have everything. You have me, you have each other, you have your work. Enjoy it. Subdue it. Rule over it with me. Just don't do this one thing. 
And now we meet the third character in this unfolding historical narrative of what God did. The tempter, Satan, enters the story. And though I haven't provided notes for you, probably this is one thing that, practically speaking, I would like you to take out into your week. The tempter speaks to Adam and Eve. And from this first temptation that invites man and woman not to trust God and not to do what he said, we really meet the nature of sin itself. What is sin? Sin is deception, and the heart of sin is this. God is holding out on you. Never mind the creator and the author of the upper story. You have to live in this world in the lower story. If you will do what seems best to you, you'll find out that there is something better for you than what God has promised. Genesis chapter 3 verse 4 tells the story. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's a direct contradiction of what God said. Why would God lie? According to the serpent, he said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the allure of sin. Everything you've ever been tempted to do that is outside of God's will, it all has this in common. The draw is that you can make your own choice and find something better than what God has given you. How many times as a pastor, can I just be Perfectly candid and practical with you for a second. I've had this conversation, and I bet you can finish this sentence for me. I've had countless conversations in over 20 years of pastoring with Christians who say something like this. Bruce, I know what God said. Can you guess the next word? Hmm. You're strangely familiar with that dynamic. Me too. See, that's the lower story ruling over the upper story. That's the creation thinking that it actually knows better than the creator. Every time I succumb to temptation, I disobey God and hurt him and hurt somebody else. It all boils down to this. In these circumstances, God, I don't think what you said applies. I think if you fully understand the magnitude of this situation, you would agree with me that I I, I can do this this one time. It'll be better if I do it my way, not yours. And a terrible, terrible, terrible evil enters the world. Sin is real. It's personal. It's deceptive. It's destructive. And it's underrated. What do I mean by underrated? I mean that it has sinned and stained and wrecked and made difficult everything in your existence, including you. The work you were created to do has never been easy. I've been in ministry my whole life, practically, aside from a brief and unsuccessful stint as a cashier at Lamps Plus, (laughs) making the glorious wage of $5 an hour and being entrusted with actual cash, which was a, that was a moral test in and of itself. I'm making five bucks an hour and I've got a guy handing me 400 bucks. Uh, I wondered even then if they'd really thought that through. But I've been in ministry my whole life, so I have an enduring fascination with what other people do. Teachers, cops, healthcare, real estate, investing, sports, therapy of all kinds. I don't care. Whatever you do, I'm interested. I want to learn about that. It's fascinating to me. So I've, to the chagrin of my wife and children, I routinely ask strangers personal questions like, what do you do? Oh, that's interesting. What's that like? 
What's the best part of being a police officer? What's the worst part of being a teacher? What's it like to be a therapist? And in all those conversations for over 20 years now, speaking only of the time as a pastor, I've never met anybody who said, you know, my work is perfect. I succeed in everything I do. Everyone I work with, the people I serve, my bosses and the people and my colleagues, they're all magnificent. They're always fair and wonderful. I seem like I've always been paid more than I deserve and I've always been able to appreciate it. I have never, I've heard of office politics, but I've never been subjected to them. I don't really understand even what that might mean. Does that sound like your world? No. Sin is underrated. It's ruined everything. And God walks into this mess, and for the first time when sin appears in the world, things that you're very familiar with that have ruined your job and made your family difficult and make your work stressful so that maybe you're sitting in here in church on Sunday dreading go, to go back to the job tomorrow. And you're wondering how you're going to make the, you're wonder how you're going to make the money stretch out to meet the bills. All of that started in Genesis chapter 3. God walks into his relationship with Adam and Eve for the very first time. And the things that they experienced for the first time. We've known all of our lives. For the first time, there was shame, and they hid from one another, and they hid from God. For the first time in human experience, because there was a problem, actually a disaster, there was blame shifting, one of my favorite things in the Old Testament. God says to Adam, because this is who he is, he's not only a creator, he is also a judge and a redeemer, and he continually seeks people. God says to Adam, where are you? And when Adam finally emerges, he does the most magnificent job of blame shifting in the history of mankind. You remember what he said? The woman you gave me. Think of that audacity of that. I was fine until you came in with her. And everybody knows that. Teachers blame the students, students blame the teachers. They both blame the parents. That's the way it works. It's blame shifting. It's real. It's wrecked everything. It's underrated. This week we were subjected to unspeakable horror in Paris. Terrible violence erupted in an office. Today I'm told by the news that world leaders from across the world are going there to ask the world for peace. I don't know what's going to happen in Paris. I pray that nothing more of that magnitude ever happens. But can I tell you what the message of Genesis 3 is? There will be no peace. Everything's difficult. Marriage is difficult. Man and woman are now a pitched battleground. Childbirth is difficult. Work is unsuccessful and unrewarding. It doesn't give the yield that you expect. You have to work for it every day. You have to hustle every day. And those motivational posters that hang in most offices, those are actually the result of living in a wrecked world. You've got to hustle. You've got to earn it. You've got to make it. You've got to watch your back. You've got to take care of yourself. All of those colloquialisms that inform our lives, those all reflect what you're accounting for every single day, the reality of evil and sin in the world, which wrecked everything. Because God is first and foremost a creator, but because he is holy and righteous, and he set the rule that established the genuineness of that relationship, he's not only a creator, he's also a judge. 
and he is a righteous judge. And if people resist the idea of God being a creator, believe me, in 21st century America, they resist the idea of God being a judge even more. I mean, one of the most common phrases in American English is, don't judge me. And it's funny because the person saying don't judge me is himself making a judgment that he shouldn't be judged. And he is judging the person who is doing the judging, saying that I am judging that you have no right to judge me. Now, what's going on here? The truth is we all judge. We're made in his image. We have no choice. It's in us to say what is good and bad, to try to seek morality and righteousness and justice in the world. And God did without fail. This is what Neil deGrasse Tyson, as brilliant as he is, cannot understand about the universe. Remember him, the one who said that the cosmos is all there ever is or ever was or ever will be? When he speaks of God, Tyson, and Neil deGrasse Tyson later says, every account of a higher power that I've seen described, of all religions that I've seen, including many statements with regards to the benevolence of that power, when I look at the universe and all the ways the universe wants to kill us, I find it hard to reconcile that with statements of beneficence. Now, he's brilliant, so he's using SAT test words, but what he means is when I see how hostile life is, it's hard for me to imagine that God is good, as they say. It's not that God isn't good. It's that we walked away from him and real sin, real evil that you account for every day in your life entered the world and ruined everything. And we don't like to think about it, but you accounted for it this morning. I can prove it. Did you lock your house? Do you save? Do you try to get insurance? Do you worry about getting sick? Parents, do you ever wonder where your kids are and worry if they're going to get home? Now, why do all of those questions shape human existence? Because sin and evil are real in the world, and God speaks as a judge into that situation. And he says, in speaking to his wayward creation, he says that the serpent, for instance, in Genesis 3.15, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here comes a mysterious verse that I need to take the time, and it will repay you if you stay with me and understand this cryptic statement. It'll help you understand the whole Bible. Go, man, that's a pretty big statement. It is, but I believe it's true. God is pronouncing as a righteous judge, and believe me, you want the judge to be righteous. We don't want unrighteous judges. We want judges that will do the right thing, that won't mince words, that won't back down, that will call wrong, wrong, and deal with it just as we hope we do. God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, in all of these pronouncements to both Adam and Eve and Satan, what God says is that evil and sin in the world have introduced a pitch battle. There is real war. All relationships are difficult. Everything is ruined. Everything is hard and difficult from now on. But there's hope in this next cryptic statement. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, people are continually going to be battling this tempter. 
But there will come a time when the offspring of the woman will do something remarkable. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what in the world does that mean? Picture me discovering a snake and stomping on it and killing it in that moment, though receiving a painful wound even as I do because I stomped on its head. That, God says, is what's going to happen someday from someone who will come from Eve. There will be a human child someday who will put an end to war. There will be a someone who ends the battle by doing what is right, by putting an end to sin and evil. And Adam and Eve of all human families on earth experience one of the most difficult things a parent can. There were only two brothers in the beginning and one killed the other. That's the depth of sin. Imagine what that did to Adam and Eve to deal with for the rest of their lives that the sin they had unleashed in the world by not trusting God had caused a death by murder inside their own family. It was difficult. It was hard. But they lived in the promise that one day a redeemer would come. And the story goes on. The sin that Adam and Eve unleashed in the world by not trusting God wrecks the world. And the concluding chapters of our reading summarize the condition of the earth this way in Genesis chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That is indescribably difficult to read. If you did the reading, and I did last night with my family, I hadn't noticed how long Genesis takes to describe this cataclysmic flood that blotted life from the earth. It's as if the author wants to slow down and let you savor just how bad it had gotten and how difficult, though righteous, this justice was. But look at the last thing God told Noah. He said, make yourself an ark. All life will be blotted out. The waters that God had separated in creation, sky and ocean, will come crashing back together. The life that has learned to ignore God and defy him and corrupted itself so much so that Paul will say later in the New Testament, it's as if the creation itself groans. It's all going to be swept away in death. The author of life is going to step into all this corruption and make it right by putting a stop to it. Have you ever wondered when you see horrible things in the news why somebody doesn't do something? Well, God does. God wills. He reserves the judgment at any time to do what is right. That's why Psalm 711, a thousand years before Jesus was born, explains God this way. God is a righteous judge and he is angry with the wicked every day. But sometimes those of us who say, I wish God would do something, should be careful what we wish for. Because the story of the flood is a cataclysm beyond description and almost beyond imagination. But there's hope there. Because God is not only a judge, he is also a redeemer. He said to this one man with one little family, you make yourself an ark. And the final reading I have for you is in Genesis 7. 
Speaking of the animals, it says, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. Watch this. And the Lord shut him in. Did you catch that little detail in your reading? It's a detail, but it's incredibly important. The creator of all life is judging all of life. But he is also a redeemer. He is putting one little human family and representative species of all of his creation in the only safe place there will be in the cosmos, and he is shutting them in. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, many years before this happened, remember God made this cryptic statement that someday the descendant of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. And we come to understand as we read through our Bible that that human being that would come to deal a final, decisive, fatal blow to Satan, though suffering a grievous wound himself, is Jesus. Someone will step into creation. The upper story will meet the lower story in a decisive way, and the creator of everything that is will actually become part of the creation. And the creator of everything that was made will be subjected to all of its evil. And Jesus will be mistreated and cursed and lied about and betrayed in every way, in every day of his ministry until finally they take him to the cross and kill him. And his best disciple, probably the man who knew him and followed him best on earth, a former skeptic who denied his goodness and his purpose, the Apostle Paul explained this verse many years later in Galatians chapter 4. Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God, the creator God who exists in perfect relationship himself from all eternity, God sent forth his son. And that son stepped into creation because he was born of woman. And he was born under the law because God is a righteous judge and lawgiver. So Jesus entered into the lower story. He entered into our story. What was his purpose? To redeem those who were under the law. To save us. To cover us. To buy us back. To make a sacrifice so that we could be saved. What is the purpose of that? Listen, this is where your story is headed. If you will hear God and believe him. God did all this so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, God is not only the creator. He's also the righteous, holy judge. But thank God, literally, that he is also the redeemer. He's the one that enters into this creation to welcome you back, not by your own merits, not by you doing better, but by trusting in his sacrifice and his work so that you can be welcomed, not as a guilty party, but as his own child. I can tell you my story. It's summed up in this verse. I learned just like every human being on earth very soon to do my own thing, to do my own way, to disobey my parents and every other authority figure in the world. To ignore God and to appeal to him only when it seemed convenient to me. But he was patient with me. And he explained his love to me. And my judge became my redeemer and he offers the same beautiful gift to you. See, in 31 weeks you're going to discover that the first things we were told about God are true throughout all of scripture. And not only through scripture which records history, it's true today. Your temptation is to make the lower story the whole story. 
to come only to God when you think you can get some help from the one who started all this. That's not how he wants you to live. He wants you in his family. He does not want to serve merely as your creator and your judge. He wants to be your redeemer so that he can welcome you into his family and you can call him your own heavenly father. If you don't have that relationship, make sure of that today. This whole story shows the interactions of God and people through centuries so that we would understand just how good God is and how much he wants you in his own family. Will you pray with me now, please? Lord, you have made us, whether we realize the magnitude of that or not, and you are the authority and the source of what is right. But thank you that along with those two great truths, you are also the redeemer who seeks us when we stray and walk away and rebel. If there's anyone here, Lord, who does not have that assurance, I pray right now that as you've done for so many others, you would soften their heart, you would turn them to you, and they would tell you that they trust you and believe you as Redeemer. And they would ask you for the gift of being welcomed into your family by what Jesus did. He crushed sin and he crushed death so that we could be welcomed into your family as forgiven and have life. Lord, now as we turn to celebrate communion as a church family, thank you for continuing to tell your story. Thank you for continuing to love us and seek us and forgive us so that today we can stand on the other side of the cross and realize that the seed of the woman actually did come and crush evil and vanquish death so that we could be forgiven and free. We do this, Lord, in your remembrance with great gratitude for what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.